Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 24. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 1009. Therefore, lift your trooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the, he- the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we know that our lives depend on your word. Jesus reminded us that, that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So would you provide us with bread this morning? We ask, would your son speak to us here by this word? Would your spirit minister to us by this word so that we receive it and obey it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not a runner. I've never run a marathon. I've never run a half marathon. I've never participated in a 4K of any kind. I have at various times in my life aspired to be a runner, but I've never been able to maintain any kind of consistent routine for more than a stretch of several months at a time, a year at most. I start strong, I develop a routine and a route, but then life gets busy, things crowd in, and ironically, running falls by the wayside. Now, there have been some more successful seasons, stretches of greater consistency around the time I was in college, one period of months, my sophomore year of college, and another stretch just after I had graduated. And do you know the common factor in both of those seasons? I was running with someone. So first, my friend Chris, in my sophomore year, who when I didn't show up outside the dorm at 6.30 at the appointed time and place, would go into my room and get me out of bed so that we would run. 
And then my friend Chuck, whom I lived with after graduation, he'd always plan out when we would run, where we would run. And both these guys, they helped me get out of the door, and they helped me to just enjoy the run with the conversation that we had together. Now again, I want to say, I'm not a runner. But it seems to me obvious that it's easier to persevere in running when others do it with you. And as our text of Scripture will show us today, that's not just true when you're pounding the pavement. It's also true when you're enduring in the race of faith. We're helped to keep running, to keep believing when we're strengthened by brothers and sisters. So I'm wondering if you know what it looks like to strengthen and be strengthened by fellow believers on the journey of faith in Jesus. Do you know how to help others on the race? Do you know the privileged position we enjoy together as we run? And do you know what you need to do to see to it that none of us falls behind on the heavenly way? Well, let's seek the answers to those questions today in our text. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. If you haven't already turned there, it's on page 1009 in your pew Bible, in the Bible there in front of you in the pew. Now, if you've been with us in Hebrews, you know that the author's aim throughout has been to urge his readers to continue in faith in Jesus and in the new covenant, not to turn back to the old covenant. They were experiencing external hostility that made shrinking back and returning to the more acceptable old covenant system seem very appealing. So in chapter 11, we've just recently come through, the author held forth example after example of Old Testament saints who persevered in faith amid loss and suffering. That list of faithful saints culminated at the beginning of chapter 12 with Jesus himself, the one who endured best of all. And so empowered by him and looking to him, the author called his readers to run their race of faith, enduring the pain faithfully. Because we saw last week, even The pain is designed by God as a father for our good to produce righteousness. And it's there that we pick up today. He returns to the metaphor of a race and calls them to strengthen themselves, to stay in the game. Look again at verses 12 to 13. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He says, don't let the pain that comes from hostility or the pain that comes from killing your sin cause you to ease up, strengthen yourself, and keep moving. I'm sure you've had the experience of of having exerted yourself, your arms, your legs, and finding out that once you've sat down or rested, your joints are stiff. Maybe some of you who worked at the workday yesterday are feeling that exact pain and inertia in this moment. It's difficult to overcome, and he's saying, no, no, strengthen your arms, strengthen your legs, lift up your hands, keep moving forward. And he says, make straight paths for your feet. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, the paths of the wicked are always crooked, and the paths of the righteous are straight. So he says, press on the straight paths, the ones where you embrace God's fatherly discipline and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you're going to be corrected and you're going to be healed, you've got to be continuing to embrace God's fatherly correction. You've got to continue on this path of faith. And then in verse 14, he, he drops the word picture of running and he issues this call to be strengthened in a more straightforward way. He says in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. So, so what does it look like in more practical terms to lift your drooping hands, to strengthen your weak knees, to make straight paths? Well, it turns out it looks very communal. He says it looks like pursuing peace with those in the community of faith. And it looks like pursuing holiness. Now, when he says in verse 14, when he says pursue peace with all or pursue peace with everyone, he's saying pursue peace with all in the church. That will become more clear in the following verses. But he's, he's not saying pursue peace with everyone in the world. He's saying pursue relational harmony with all the different kinds of people that you find in your assembly, in your gathering. Of course, he's not saying to be unpeaceful or hostile to the world. It's just that's not what he's speaking to at the moment. He's talking about our life together here. Now, why would there need to be an exhortation towards peace in this congregation? We don't know for sure, but we do know that this church was experiencing persecution, right? And whenever there's pressure from the outside, it always reveals fractures inside. And it raises questions like, what's the appropriate response to hostility? What does capitulation to outside persecution look like? You can almost hear those disagreements about dealing with persecution taking place on first century Facebook. How do we respond to what's going on and people disagreeing in the comments? And when there's real external pressure, there's also no more important time to have real unity and peace. Recall that some of these believers were having their property plundered. They were being thrown in jail. That's the time when the church needs to be ready to welcome into homes those who have lost theirs, to feed the children of parents who've been thrown in jail. The church can shine in these moments of crisis and persecution. It can provide stability and a refuge that keeps the weak and the faint-hearted from leaving the faith. But not if there's a lack of peace. Not if there's discord. So he says, strengthen one another to run by striving for peace. Likewise, he says, they're strengthened to run by pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the holiness he's referring to here is moral purity, to righteousness. He's thinking of practical holiness, real-time, day-to-day, lived-out holiness of personal devotion to the Lord. And he says, if you're to be strengthened for the race, you must pursue that moral purity, which, by the way, if you lack you will not see the Lord. Now, I wonder if some of you are uncomfortable with that last statement in verse 14, that there's a practical holiness, which if you lack it, you won't get to see God and enjoy him forever. After all, you might be thinking, if there's one big idea we've heard in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapters 8 to 10, it's that Jesus gives us the holiness we need to stand before God. He buys, by his bloody death on the cross, the sanctification that brings us to God. We have been sanctified, Hebrews 10.10 says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. We are made holy by Jesus' work to offer himself up on the cross, then to rise and ascend to the true temple where he presented that sacrifice for us, And he ever lives to intercede on the basis of that sacrifice. He is our sanctification. And we gain all of that by faith. Yes. And then, as we walk by faith 
day to day. That glorious holiness before God evidences itself in practical holiness every day. The blood-bought holiness that Jesus gives us by faith is manifested as we strive to obey him day to day. He cancels sin by his blood, and as the hymn rightly says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. So if you lack this holiness, you won't see God because you don't belong to God. And so we strive to manifest it. And actually, the same thing could be said about peace in the body of Christ, couldn't it? Has not Christ, by his death, purchased an objective peace and unity in the body of Christ? Of course he has. And yet, that peace gets worked out through real efforts to strive for it. Both peace and holiness are gifts of God, purchased by Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and they are to be sought after and strived for and must increasingly be seen in the lives of his people. So this is how the author says, we strengthen ourselves to run the race. We pursue peace with the body and the holiness without which none of us will see the Lord. And at this point, his instruction takes an even more practical turn. He details further, what does it look like for the church to do this? To strive for peace and to strive for holiness together. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He says there are three things you're to take care don't happen in your midst. See to it that no one fails to obtain grace, that there's no root of bitterness, that no one is immoral or unholy. Now, each of these commands is just a different way of talking about apostasy, a different way of talking about dropping out of the race of faith, of turning back. And as he lists them, the descriptions get longer and more intense. And before we look at each of these in turn, Just note that these commands are to look out, to watch for not your own well-being, but for the well-being of others in the church. Do you see that? The commands are to care for the good of your neighbor in Christ. He doesn't say in verse 15, see to it that you, person, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. No, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's saying you exercise care for one another in such a way that this other person is helped and peace and holiness is promoted. So we're quick to individualize these commands so that they become watch over ourselves. And of course, that's appropriate. We do want to watch over ourselves. We do want to make sure that we are individually pursuing holiness. But his perspective here is one in which the whole community is trying to further the holiness of each other. Peace and holiness is a group project. We're running the race of faith not as rugged cowboys, roughing it on our own, Rather, we run and strive together. And this is not a new idea in the book of Hebrews. Back in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, we were told this. Just listen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it's a command We heard back in chapter 10 to enter the final rest. He he says this, Consider how to stir one one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, stir each other up to love, good deeds, and gathering together as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. And it's the same thing here. As we run the race, looking forward to arriving at our eternal home, he says, look out for one another. Look out for one another. So what are the things that they were to keep on guard for in their brothers and sisters? Again, he lists three things, but they're really all ways of talking about apostasy, of falling away from the true and living God. First, he says, verse 15, he says, make sure no one fails to obtain or falls short of God's grace. So the image here is a person failing to reach their destination. There was a good start, but then they fizzled out. They seem to experience grace as a member of the community, but they fail to attain that final glorious grace of God revealed at Christ's return. Then the second half of verse 15, he says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Now, when you hear bitterness, perhaps your tendency is to think, again, relationally, of discord with with one another. But actually, the author is referring to a metaphor from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 29. Listen as I read that passage to you. This is from Deuteronomy. This is a warning that God is issuing to the people of Israel as they journey toward the promised land. He says this, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry Alike, The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. So in the Old Testament, the imagery of a bitter root is a person who with a hard and unbelieving heart turns away from the living God, turns away from his covenant to pursue idols, and so God turns away from him, casts him out of his covenant. So too here in Hebrews, the root of bitterness is an idolatrous person who turns back from the Lord Jesus and from the new covenant in him. And the author says, be on guard so that anyone tempted toward that kind of idolatry is rebuked and called back to the path of devotion and holiness. Because he notes, if that idolatry is allowed to flourish in the midst of your church, it will cause trouble for the whole church. Many will become defiled, which means many will see They'll see this idolatry going unchecked, and so apostasy will become widespread. It won't just stay with one person. No, no. It'll spread through the whole congregation. Don't let that take root in your midst. And he says in verse 16, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now, I think that those two terms, sexually immoral and unholy, like Esau, are meant to be taken together. I think they work together to convey a contemptuous turning away from the Lord and his covenant. I say that because sexual immorality is often used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for spiritual adultery, for forsaking God. And that seems to be the concern in this context. Now, of course, believers should be on guard to make sure 
that their brothers and sisters avoid actual sexual immorality. And he's going to actually talk about that in chapter 13. But I think the context here, the concern is infidelity to God, treating his grace with contempt. And that explains the comparison to Esau. He says, don't be like Esau. We have no evidence in Genesis that Esau was sexually immoral, but we do have evidence right here in this text how Esau showed a contempt for his covenantal relationship with God. He sold his birthright for a cup of soup. You remember this story? You reach back to when you were in Sunday school. I'm guessing for you, like me, it's, it's a little bit fuzzy. So let's go back, actually, to Genesis chapter 25. Turn back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25, and let's just refresh ourselves. Let's be refreshed on this story. This is Genesis chapter 25, end of the chapter, verse 29. Remember that Esau and Jacob are the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. They're twins, but Esau emerged first, so he's the firstborn. And that means the covenant blessings, the promises to Abraham and to Isaac, they belong to him. He's the heir of the promise. He's the heir of the covenant. But what happens? Let's begin reading verse 29 of Genesis 25. Once... When Jacob, the younger son, was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So let's go back to to Hebrews 11. So Esau gives up his birthright. He gives up his right to the inheritance as a firstborn for a bowl of soup and bread. There was bread too. Now, the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that Esau's example is not to be followed. He's the opposite of all the faithful examples we saw in Hebrews chapter 11. They endured a lifetime of hardship by faith in the promise, by faith that they would inherit something in the future. But Esau, for the fleeting pleasure of a single meal, abandons his status as an heir of God's promise. That's what his privileged position was worth to him. One meal. He possessed a precious, holy thing, and he treated it in an unholy manner, with contempt. And the author is saying to the church, see to it that no one is immoral and unholy like this. So unable to see the value of being a new covenant member that you turn away from the living God. The pressure was great on them to turn away from Jesus due to the hostility of their culture, to go back to the old covenant, much more comfortable for them. But what a devastating miscalculation. To shrink back from Christ for a few moments of ease in this life and lose out on an eternity of pleasure forever at God's right hand. It's easy to be hard on Esau, isn't it? Like, come on, man, it was just soup. How good was that soup? But actually, the author of the Hebrews says the same thing is true when anyone, for the sake of sin, the desire for sin, 
or the desire to avoid persecution, turn back from Christ. It's the same thing. And notice the lesson drawn from the life of Esau in verse 17. He says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Later in the narrative of of Genesis, when Jacob tricks Esau again, this time out of his father's blessing, it becomes clear that Esau regretted his earlier decision. He regretted it. But it was done. He had, with eyes wide open, and for the temporary joy of a meal, sold his birthright. And though he sought that blessing again, what was done was done. There was no going back. So too, the author implies that for those who, with eyes wide open, abandon the covenant promise that is in Jesus, whether because of opposition externally or the desire to pursue sin internally, if Jesus is openly abandoned, there is no guarantee of return. We've already heard this. Do you remember from chapter 10 where the author wrote, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Those who walk away from Jesus with their eyes wide open should not expect to find a way back. So he says, don't abandon your birthright your privileged position as a member of the new covenant. Work together so that no one is immoral or unholy like this. Keep running in the heavenly way. Now this leads the author to remind his readers what their privileged position is as those who are part of the new covenant. And as he does so, he changes scenes drastically from an athletic metaphor of running and striving And instead, he puts up a comparative picture of two mountains. Let's read verses 18 through 24 again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In trying to help his readers better understand the inheritance that they're running to gain. He paints a contrasting portrait of these two mountains and the two covenants associated with them. First, he speaks of Mount Sinai, though he he never actually says it by name. That's obviously the place he's talking about. Mount Sinai was the wilderness mountain from which God gave the old covenant to the nation of Israel. And the description here is meant to call to mind that whole law-giving, covenant-making event. Now, to see what he has in mind, I think it would be helpful for us to turn back one more time. So if you turn back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and turn to chapter 19, I think it will be helpful to be reminded of what the author is referencing here. So Exodus chapter 19, 
We'll start in verse 9. This story takes place just before the giving of the Ten Commandments. So it's just right before the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, which is the essence of the covenant with Israel. Listen to the scene, chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now jump across the page to chapter 20. Verses 18 through 21. This is just after the Lord has delivered the Ten Commandments to the people. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the scene is a terrifying one, in which God comes down to the mountain, but his presence is fearful and guarded. First, he cannot be seen. He's shrouded in fire, darkness, gloom, storm. And the order is given that even if an animal comes near and touches this mountain where God is coming down, if an animal touches the mountain, it will die. No wonder the people stand far off. There's no confident access to God on this mountain. You don't get it here in this Exodus account, but the author of Hebrews picks up from Deuteronomy that even Moses trembled with fear. And there's a special emphasis on the terrifying speech of God. So if you go back to Hebrews 11, sorry, Hebrews 12, the author notes God's speech was terrifying to him, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to to them. It made the the people terrified to hear God speak. It even made the guy who was mediating the covenant, the guy who was supposed to deliver the covenant, it made him nervous. He was afraid. And all of that speaks to the nature of this old covenant tied to this mountain. It wasn't able to deal with sin. For the people gathered at that mountain, there was no promise of real forgiveness of sins and real access to God. And so it was a fearful place. But the Hebrew author says, that's not your mountain. That's not your covenant. He says, You aren't part of that congregation. That was one of the ways God spoke long ago to our fathers. But the covenant you've come to share in, the inheritance you've been promised, was not made by a terrifying voice shrouded in darkness. No, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. This is the mountain to which you belong by faith. This is a happy, happy mountain. It's a place of access and joy and privilege. Now, 
Mount Zion refers to the city of David, to Jerusalem, where the king rules. But the author's not talking about a physical city in Palestine. He's talking about the heavenly Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where, we've already been told in this book, is the true tabernacle, the one not made with hands, the place where Jesus has already gone up and sprinkled his blood. It's the place, he says, where myriads of angels dwell in festal gathering. Now, we don't talk a lot about festal gatherings in our day. No one invites you to a festal gathering. But the idea here is it's a celebratory event. You've come to the place where the angels rejoice and sing. And he says, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. This is a reference to the the redeemed of all ages, God's assembly, who by faith in Jesus are firstborn. They're heirs of the new covenant. And it's the place where God himself dwells. He stands at the center of the list and the center of the worship of heaven. And note that while he is the judge of all, the terrifying imagery of Sinai is absent. And this is the mountain where dwell the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is, faithful saints who endured in faith, who lived righteously, and enjoy the holiness won by Christ's blood, even as they await the resurrection from the dead. And then the final two glorious features of this mountain. He says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood. Jesus and his blood complete the list. He is the better Mediator who gladly welcomes those who trust in him to the very presence of God the judge because of his blood. And the voice that speaks from this mountain is not meant to be a terrifying voice. It's a good voice. It's better than that of Abel. Do you remember back in Genesis 4 when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain? God said his blood was crying out from the ground, crying out for vindication, crying out for justice. But the blood of Jesus from this mountain speaks better. The blood he spilled on the cross, the blood he took up to the heavenly tabernacle, it speaks cleansing. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks mercy for all those who receive it and cling to it. That's a better word. Now let's back up a minute and try to recall what this picture is meant to be communicating because it's easy to get lost in all the metaphors. You know, you've come to a mountain, but you haven't literally come, and it's not a literal mountain that you can touch, but it's a heaven mountain, and we're already there, but we're also on a journey, and how do all these things fit together? I don't know if I can solve all of that, but here's, here's what the imagery is meant to communicate. Here's what the, this picture of these two mountains is supposed to help you see. He says to the congregation, these professing Christians, he says, you're not the group of people that went to Mount Sinai and received an inferior covenant promise that couldn't get you to God and then headed out to try to enter the promised land. That's not who you are. That's not your mountain. That's not your covenant. So don't go back to that covenant. You're actually heirs of a much better covenant. By faith in Jesus, you've come with him to the true heavenly mountain where God himself dwells among the celebrations of the angels and the saints of every age. All that is yours. Jesus has already brought you into the immense privileges of this covenant. So don't let external pressure or internal pressure cause you to fail to inherit it. You have tasted even now of these heavenly gifts. You've participated in the powers of the age to come. 
Continue to enjoy them and strive after them. You have already, by faith, come up to the heavenly Jerusalem. So now press on and run and strive to enter into the final promised land of the new creation. You've become participants now, by faith, in the happy assembly of the saints above. So strive now for peace with the saints below. You've come to God, the judge of all, without any condemnation because Jesus has purified you with his own sprinkled blood. So walk in that blood-bought holiness and righteousness. And you have come to Jesus. You've come to the all-surpassing Son. You've come to the one whose glory the author has been at pains to display throughout this book. You've come to the one who is the radiance of God's Glory, the one through whom he made the world, the one who of old laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens. You've come to the one who was for a while made lower than the angels, sharing in flesh and blood true humanity so that he might taste death for his brothers and sisters. You have come to the one who learned obedience through what he suffered so that he might be a faithful priest and who offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for sins. You've come to the one who presented that sacrifice to God in the heavenly temple and then sat down as perfect priest and perfect king. You've come to the one who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. You've come to him. So don't turn away from him. Do not crucify him again. Do not trample him underfoot. Do not allow the bitter root of idolatry to spring up such that you hold him to contempt, preferring some idol over the Holy Son of God. Don't be like Esau and abandon all this glory for a single bowl of soup. You've already tasted such exquisite glory of the new covenant. So pursue peace and holiness. Work to stay together on this heavenly way. Care for one another so that no one is lost on the way. And as we'll see next week, can't you see what a grievous, blasphemous thing it would be to renounce such a privileged position? Can't you see that to ignore this Jesus and this covenant will only bring horrific disaster from God, the judge of all. He remains the judge of all. Now, some of you here have spent your life ignoring this Jesus and his his offer of life, but you can still come to him. You can come to this mountain right now by faith. Your sins separate you from this God, and he is the judge of all. If you continue to live your life content, like Esau, to enjoy the momentary pleasures and comforts of this life and ignore his son, you will not inherit the promise of eternal life. You will inherit wrath and fury and fire and darkness for all eternity. And like Esau, who once it was done, it was done though he wished to go back with tears, you will weep those tears. So leave behind your sin. Give it up. Have done with lesser things. And turn in faith to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. His blood can speak for you. 
His blood can sprinkle you even this morning. His blood can cleanse you from your sin even this morning if you will let go of your sin and come to him by faith now. Now, how do we heed this call to strengthen our drooping hands and weak knees, to strive for peace and holiness together as a church? Well, it turns out you don't have to do a lot of fancy footwork on this text to bring it over to us. To be strengthened to run the race, we too must strive for peace with one another and for holiness together. So strive for peace with everyone in this assembly. For the Hebrew readers, it was probably external pressure that made pursuing peace more difficult, the the pressure from the outside world. But I think for us, the obstacles are more internal, related to our own differences, one another, our varied preferences, and our tendency to misunderstand one another and even to sin against one another. It is these relational fractures that lead us to distance ourselves from one another, or worse, to cut ourselves off from one another, rather than robustly pursuing the peace that Christ has won for us. So if you're going to pursue peace together with the saints, you need to deal with relational fractures that you have with your brothers and sisters here. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if I have a relational fracture, if I, if I have discord, a lack of peace with someone here? Ask yourself this question. When you come into this room on a Sunday morning, are there people you're trying to avoid? Is there somebody that when you're walking to go get coffee at the coffee station, you see them, you turn around and go the other way because you don't want to be there and make small talk while you pour the creamer? Is there a couple that you're secretly hoping won't be in your community group next year? Is there someone you don't want to shovel mulch with or paint next to that you tried to avoid at the workday? That's a warning sign that things are not well between you and another brother or sister. Peace must be pursued, and the inertia to live and let live, as though that could actually happen, is tremendous. To pretend like everything's fine, but you need to strengthen your hands and knees, make straight paths, take the next step towards peace with your family here. Have a conversation. Ask for forgiveness. Seek clarification. I know that's not always simple. If it were simple, we would do it a lot more easily. You may need to ask for help, for counsel from others. But don't allow the messiness of pursuing the peace Christ has won keep you from taking real, tangible steps today towards resolution, towards the pursuit of peace. Because when this assembly is functioning properly as a peaceful community of love, it becomes much easier for all of us to run the race We have each other. We have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith to walk with us at every step, to lift, help us lift our hands and knees, to help us learn how to walk on righteous paths, to weep when we weep, to rejoice when we rejoice. There's great strength to keep in the race in a community marked by peace. It's like in a marriage, you know, how when you and your spouse are together, when there's no discord, when there's no disharmony, when there's no hostility, when you're for each other, it almost doesn't matter what else is going on. You can weather it because you're together and vice versa. When there's a lack of peace, it doesn't matter how good the rest of life is. You're a mess. 
so too, each of us working together to maintain peace with one another in this body strengthens the whole church so that we keep running the race with endurance. So pursue peace with one another. Examine your heart. Is there relational discord with somebody in this body? Take a step today toward resolving that and pursuing peace together. And strive for holiness together. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now remember, the, the focus here, too, is also corporate. It's striving to see to it that no one apostatizes, that no one fails to obtain God's grace, that no one has a bitter root of idolatry present in our midst, that no one is immoral or unholy. Now, the author hasn't been saying that you actually have the power to finally keep someone from falling away. You're not all-powerful. You can't change hearts. But the point is, make every effort you can to keep one another running the race of faith. Help one another manifest the holiness that must be present on that last day. So how does this work practically? Well, first, let me tell you how it does not work. This is not a license to go around policing everyone in the church. It's not a license to go snooping around into other people's business. It's not a call to go around accusing everyone of gross idolatry and apostasy the moment you perceive a sin or just a difference with the way you're wired. This isn't a way for you to baptize being a gossip or a holier-than-thou busybody. But I got to say, I don't think that's where most of us live. I think we're actually pretty happy, for the most part, with our lives over here and keeping our mess to ourselves. You have your mess, I have my mess, I don't ask about yours, you don't ask about mine, deal. (laughs) But we can't have that attitude if we're to watch over one another in a way that's described here. We're trying to inherit promises together. And that means having your antenna up to the possibility of people in our midst drifting from Christ. So be on the lookout for those who may be at risk of falling away in our midst. Keep alert for those who seem to be shying away from publicly associating with Christ and his church, for those who are absent from our midst. Care for those who are walking through difficult circumstances who might be more tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Look out for those whose lives are going so well they might be losing their sense of dependence on the Lord. And if something does seem off in your brother or your sister, don't jump all over them. Accusing them immediately of apostasy and idolatry. Ask them how they're doing. Pray for them. See if there's a way you can serve them and encourage them. Help them to stay on the path with your words and your deeds. Now let me try to make this even more practical. This striving for holiness. You know that our community group year is wrapping up. We just have a few more weeks to go. And that means we're in that sweet spot And the last part of the year where you actually know the people in your group well enough to have meaningful conversations. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've gotten comfortable with each other. You've done potlucks together. You've planned a baby shower. You've prayed together. You've talked about your job, your families for almost eight months. And you've done that enough that you could sit down with them. You could sit down with someone in your group without it being awkward and saying, where do you think you're most tempted to turn away from Christ? What do you think most competes in your life for your attention? What sin do you think you need to lay aside in order to better run the race? Or maybe better yet, you could say, you know, I've been thinking about Hebrews. I don't want to fall away from Jesus, but 
here's an area where I, I think I'm genuinely tempted. You could do that with someone from your community group this week over coffee or over a meal or during a play date or while taking a walk. And think of how processing those questions together could benefit us and safeguard us on our journey. Now, you don't have to do it that way. You don't even have to do it with somebody in your community group. That's, that's not the point. Community groups are just a simple way that we as a church try to facilitate the kind of relational closeness that this passage presupposes. The text assumes that you're living life together in such close proximity to your brothers and sisters that your life can be seen with sufficient detail for others to know if you're wandering from the path. So seek to be helpful to each other in this way and invite that kind of help from others. You've spent the last eight months or so getting to know those in your community group, so use it to care for each other, to to strive together so that none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. And let me challenge you, if you're you're here as a professing, professing Christian and you're not actively involved in a local church, you're not a member, or you're just not engaged, you're not all in. I'm wondering how you think this process of mutual care is going to get worked out in your life. Without immersing yourself in a local church, how do you expect others to do this for you? How do you expect to be able to do this for others? Maybe you'd say, well, I keep watch on myself and my own holiness. Well, you are to strive for your own personal holiness, Yes, but your personal holiness, according to this text, is a group project. So it doesn't have to be this group. It doesn't have to be this church. But find a gospel-preaching, holiness-pursuing church and get all in. Immerse yourself because you need to be watched over by brothers and sisters. Now, you who belong to this church, to this assembly, think about your brothers and sisters in this room. I'm not going to make you turn around and look at everybody, but think about the faces of those gathered here with you, your fellow heirs of the promise, partakers with you of the blessings of Mount Zion. Don't you want to strive so that each and every one of them receives the inheritance? Wouldn't it be a glorious thing, wouldn't it be a glorious thing to arrive in the promised land altogether? So let's go on. Let's lift our drooping hands. Let's strengthen our knees and keep walking together on that heavenly way. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you, our gracious, merciful Father. And we give ourselves to you. We, we humbly ask that you would take this word that, you, that, that we've heard this morning and that you would cause it to take root deeply within us so that neither the scorching heat of persecution or the thorns of difficulty would choke out the faith that's within us, but rather that we would grow in ever-increasing persevering, enduring faith. May peace and holiness, Father, we ask, please, by your Spirit, flourish in our congregation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.